Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler, and this is episode 25 of the podcast. I figured when I started the podcast last fall that we'd end up doing, oh, probably 35 or 40 episodes. And I kind of looked at the summer games this summer as kind of an endpoint for the podcast. But with the Summer Olympics pushed to 2021, that endpoint is a lot further out than I had anticipated. And I started wondering a, a few weeks ago if I should continue the podcast. Uh, uh, and, and, and I decided that I do want to continue doing it, even, even if it does mean we're going into 2021 and then 2022 is the Winter Olympics, um, because of the people I've gotten to talk with and get to know. And Abby Duncan is no exception. She is my guest this week. She is a Paralympian in wheelchair basketball. She found the sport in 2013. She... Two years later, was representing the United States on the international stage. A year after that, won Paralympic gold, playing for Coach Stephanie Wheeler, whom we interviewed on a podcast a a few months ago. I learned a lot just talking for a half hour with Abby. And one of the reminders was, you know, because she's playing wheelchair basketball, it doesn't mean she's confined to a wheelchair. Abby can walk, but she has condition where... Uh, she can't run. She can't, uh, you know, play able-bodied basketball, and and it, that presented a lot of struggle for her when this first came about. A lot of physical pain, a lot of emotional pain, and, and we talk about that, and we talk about what the sport of wheelchair basketball has meant to her, what it's meant to her, a mental well-being, and and hint hint hint. It, not surprising. It's meant a lot. It also means a lot to her to represent Team LGBTQ on the international stage. She doesn't just play for Team USA. She represents our entire community, and that really means something to her as well. So I hope you uh, learned a thing or two and enjoy my conversation with Abby Duncan. I'm thrilled to be joined now by Abby Duncan, a Paralympian in wheelchair basketball, and I feel like every conversation recently has started with uh, the pandemic. So let's just let's talk about something really good and positive to start. Let's talk about your Paralympic experience. Was being a part of the Olympics or Paralympics like growing up a part of your um, a, a part of your athletic vision, something a, a goal, something you wanted to do? Honestly, not at all. Um, for me, growing up, the Olympics was something that I loved to watch during the summer and winter games, but I never fully envisioned myself actually competing competing at the games. So to be able to do that was unreal. At what point did it become something that you envisioned for yourself? Um, it started becoming a vision once I right after I started playing wheelchair basketball, I introduced to the sport in uh, 2013. And the, even the word Paralympic and Olympic started showing up. And I, was, and I had people around me telling me like, you know what, there is a possibility there, like you could do this. Like if you keep at it and keep working hard and um, keep on the right track that you could actually make this a possibility. And so that was the first time like, hey, you know what, maybe I can do this. And I remember having that conversation with my mom after one of the first practices I attended and she's been the real MVP and kind of backbone of how I grew up and how I've been able 
to compete at the games and represent the United States. And so it back in 2013 was when it really started becoming a possibility for me. Uh, this might be a tough question to answer, but how did you get so good so fast? There aren't many people who pick up a sport and 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 two years later, I believe it was for you, represent their country on the international stage and three years later, win an Olympic gold medal. That usually doesn't happen. How did you get so good so fast? I joke that it's a, my shot is only good if the ball goes in. Um, but I grew up playing stand-up basketball my entire life. I also was a second-degree black belt in martial arts, and so I did sports growing up. Um, and my dad was a big track cross-country runner in college as well. And so basketball at the time for me was my outlet. That was the thing that I gave all my energy into. And wheelchair basketball, I can constantly say, saved my life. And so that was the one thing that I had a connection with people that we were on the same level. And no matter what disability or where you came from, like all that mattered was what we could produce on the court together. And so, and I love the feeling of the camaraderie between everyone. And so I knew this is something I wanted to do and keep working at. And so I was fortunate enough to um, attend the University of Texas at Arlington to play where I played five years, about within a year of uh, playing. Who introduced you to the sport? Um, I actually found it on YouTube, out <laughs> of all places. Uh, it was right after um, I had began using a wheelchair, and I was on YouTube when the first sports I actually found was murder ball. Um, and I watched a documentary on murder ball and wheelchair rugby, and thought it was the coolest thing. And then I came across game film of wheelchair basketball from the 2012 London Paralympic Games. And I thought, I was like, oh, their arms are jacked. Like, this is the coolest thing ever. And I, you know, I, I just got to try that. And so my father um, is a retired Marine, Marine Corps officer, and so we had access to Fort Sam Houston, military base in San Antonio. I grew up in New Braunfels, Texas, and so um, I tried out the game for the very first time with guys that had just come back from overseas, um, adapting to a new life with their disability, um, and about twice my age and twice my size, and here comes in the scrawny teenager room trying out basketball for the first time, and I immediately fell in love with it. And then I got involved with a team in San Antonio called the uh, San Antonio Parasport Spurs Wheelchair Basketball Team. And those guys, were, they were an all-military team. And they kind of showed me the ropes and the foundation of the game and uh, let me tag along and play for a season before I eventually got recruited to UT Arlington. And you mentioned that the sport saved your life, and that is not an exaggeration. You... Um fell into a very deep depression and turned to uh, uh, turned to, to prescription drugs uh, or, or narcotics? Mm -hmm. Prescription drugs, yeah. I, um, I try to stay away from prescription drugs for the longest time because I just knew the side effects and everything that could carry and the negative, the potential negative impact it could have. Um, and there was just, I had this really bad flare where I just knew I needed help. Um, and prescription drugs were kind of my last resort. And after kind of the, I had some treatments that didn't go as planned in high school that resulted in me in using the chair. Um, and so it was just prescriptions after prescriptions after prescriptions. And so one night um, I fell into like a really like rock bottom kind of low. And um, I had actually set my alarm on my phone for 2.22 in the morning. I don't really know why the time, but I just picked it and um, I found some extra, I found a bottle of prescription pills and that was not supposed to mix with my current prescription. Um, and so 
after a few minutes, um, after I had downed the bottle, I went back to bed and closed my eyes and tried to go back to sleep. And within a few minutes, I'm thinking, holy shit, what did I just do? And it wasn't so much, I don't know how to put it, so much disgust with myself of you actually just did that or the fact that I had to go tell my mom what I just did. I think that was more gut-wrenching to me than actually doing the act. Um, And so I woke my mom up and I was like, mom, I just did something really dumb. And she knew immediately. And at the time, I didn't really have a relationship too much with my father. Um, And so we had informed him and he just kind of laughed and brushed it off. That was kind of relationship I had with him growing up. Um, And so we, we, I go to the hospital and and everything gets kind of pumped down. It's fine. Um, But that was, that was kind of like a wake up call for me. And I'm glad I wasn't, I'm glad I didn't just go to bed because I'm for sure I wouldn't have woken up the next morning. Um, but that was definitely a wake up call and a lesson learned for sure. And so that kind of got me out of the rock bottom thinking, okay, if this is rock bottom, the only way I can go is up. And so that's how I kind of view life now. Did you, when you swallowed all those pills, were you really just trying to get rid of the pain or, or somewhere in your head, were you trying to end your life? I think it was both. Um, with chronic pain, all you feel is the same pain day in and day out. It's physically exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. It's emotionally exhausting, not just for yourself, but your friends and family that are around, that are around you day in and day out. And so part of me also felt like a burden. Um, and so I didn't want to cause any more pain, any more uh, a rise in medical bills. That's one thing my dad was really upset about at the time. I didn't want to cause anything else. That was because of me. Um, and so I was at that point, I was fully ready to throw in the towel and be done. Cause I didn't, at that point in time, I did not see life getting better. And once you're in that dark circle or rock bottom, it's so hard to see the light and so hard to see past that moment. You were moments from going back to sleep and never waking up. What happened in your head that made you go talk to your mom? I just had this gut feeling of like, you know what, this isn't how it's going to end. I don't know how to really describe it, but it was just like this intuitive gut feeling that like this, this wasn't, this wasn't it and that there was more and that this is not what my mom raised raised me to be. And I'm much bigger than this. I'm much stronger than this. And the pain was only temporary, but the way I saw it at the time was also they say when it comes to suicide that it's a temporary solution to a permanent problem. I felt in my case it was a permanent solution to a permanent problem. So that time doctors had no answers. It was just pills after pills, more treatments after this, more therapy after this. So I just I just saw it as never ending. So I really didn't see that it could get better. But I just had a gut feeling that something was bigger and better down the road. I didn't know when, but I knew it was going to happen at some point. So how is it that that wheelchair basketball saved your life? I mean, obviously, you know, in that moment, you, you made a choice. What is it that wheelchair basketball has given you that has kept you away from uh, some of those dark places? The game itself has given me so much more than I could imagine, but it's also the people within the game. It's the relationships and the memories that are made that I find to be 
worth more than any gold medal. It's given me a platform to speak out. It's given the team is actually one of the biggest reasons why I was able to publicly come out because they were so supportive on the collegiate level and at the international level. And they, everyone I've come across has really been my second family. And so they've been a big push. And I can't imagine doing this journey without any of them. When is it that you first started talking about being gay? Um, I was a kid, kind of knew when I was younger, but didn't know what gay actually meant. Um, I just knew I felt different and didn't know why and grew up in New Braunfels. There's a lot of churches, a lot of religion. Um, and so it was just very, very looked down upon. Um, and so when I got to college, I was still scared of kind of coming out of the closet. And so my team, my freshman year kind of opened up the door for me and kind of pulled me out a little bit, not in a negative way, but kind of like a positive push. And so they've been a huge reason why I've been able to speak out and be publicly open. My family has been more than supportive. Um, and seeing people like Stephanie Wheeler um, in, a, in a wheelchair basketball community has been a huge role model um, in the way she's been able to speak out and play and coach and do all these amazing things and still be out. So she was a big, big role model for me. You talked about your relationship with your dad. When you came out, um, did that improve your relationship to make it deteriorate or did it not have much of an effect? Um, to be honest, I never really had a coming out moment with my dad. Um, I had one with my mom and she was so supportive. The rest of my family is. Um, I have not seen my dad in about six years, um, basically since maybe freshman year of college around that. Um, I've never, like I said, I never had that coming out moment. It was just kind of like that unsaid fact like you like you know I know but I'm not going to say it because it's just kind of how it is with him um but yeah did he has he come to any of your games at all or seen you play um he he was actually at the Rio Paralympic Games um I saw him once in the stands um but that was about it how do you feel about that um, at first, I was pretty distraught. Um, he, growing up, or actually going to my freshman year of college, I learned that he had a um, another kind of life outside of the family, to say it that way. And um, and so we just haven't really talked all that much. We haven't seen him. And now he lives about an hour away from me. Um, but he's got his life. I have mine. I'm happy. I'm doing well, competing. My mom, like I said, is the MVP and kind of the backbone of the family. Um, I have a, an amazing stepdad and step family, and so they've been great and supportive. So I think everything works out just the way it's supposed to. Well, everybody, hang tight. We're going to cut away for to a couple commercials, and then when we come back, we're we're going to talk <laughs> about actually the Paralympics. Okay, we're back with Abby Duncan. We started this conversation um, talking about the Paralympics. Um, just kind of tell me about your experience there. It was surreal. And so I, I had my first international competition in 2015, um, the pa Para Pan American Games. And so the Pan American Games are, the, for us, all the Americas, Canada, North America, South America, and Mexico. And so, but going to the Paralympics, it's everyone. So that was kind of my first culture shock. 
And it was so cool just seeing different people in different from different countries and getting to compete in a gym full of 12,000 people and represent your country. Um, it was definitely an eye-opener, and I still have made so many friendships from the games that we still keep in contact. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely an amazing experience for sure. Were you in preparation for the next Olympic Games later this year before this pandemic began? Yeah, so we actually just named our team in uh, February uh, for Tokyo, and I was fortunate enough to make that final cut. Um, but with the pandemic, <laughs> we obviously the games are postponed until next year. So um, that's caused some complications, but the mindset doesn't change as far as training and gearing up for the games. At the 2016 uh, games, the LGBTQ athletes um, there were a lot of headlines. Um, they they were getting engaged to one another. Um, there was a crazy story about uh, a journalist trying to entrap gay athletes, gay male athletes. Um, when being there in the middle of that, um, and and obviously the Paralympics come right after the Olympic Games, um, and and seeing some of these stories unfold. Were you aware that this stuff was going on or are you just so focused on what you're trying to get accomplished that it's all just background noise? Yeah, honestly, I was so focused on our team goal and trying to make myself a better athlete that time. So I didn't really pay attention too much um, on the outside and media and that kind of stuff. Um, But I didn't learn about all that till much later. Um, and I think also I was so starstruck as coming in as one of the rookie players on the team, my first Paralympics, and I knew my role. And so I was just so beyond excited to even go to attend. And so, yeah, I didn't really pay attention to too much at the time. What was, and maybe you have one or two, but, but, but tell us, tell us a, a highlight or two of your experience in Rio. Um, a highlight or two of mine would actually be the first one would be actually off court. Um, so in the Olympic and Paralympic Village, a big thing is uh, trading pens. You trade and you try to collect as many pens from different countries as you can. And so I was in the dining hall one evening with one of my teammates, and we come across a team from um, oh, I think it was Iraq, I believe. Saudi Arabia, one of the two, and um, we walked, we went up to them. And we're like, "Hey, you want to trade pens?" And they looked at us, and they just kind of saw we're American and kind of just brushed us off, like, "Oh, they're just Americans," and got really disgusted. And we're like, "No, no, like pen. Do you want to trade?" I didn't know if they spoke English at the time or anything. I was kind of clueless. Um, and then one of them start, finally started talking to us. Was super friendly. Um, and then there was one that was a girl sitting next to me. And she looked at me, looked back down on her plate and looked at me. And then she mentioned, oh, you're American. Why are you talking to us? And I was thinking, what? Like, it was such a culture shock. And it just blew my mind. And it didn't even hit me about how other countries and other cultures might perceive us as Americans because of what you find in the news and politics and media and all this kind of stuff. But... Um, after talking with them for a few minutes, we got to know each other and traded pens and noticed one of them was wearing like Steph Curry basketball shoes. And so we were kind of laughing about that. But um, now we connect like over Instagram. Um, so that was definitely an eye-opening for me, at least, 
Um, and then the second one was obviously winning the gold medal, which was an awesome experience and getting to see your flag raise a little higher than everybody else's. And to be on top of the podium with the family that you have trained for the past three, four years with constantly and putting the blood, sweat and tears in to hear your anthem play in front of a, a crowd of like 12,000 people and to see my mom and my granny in the stands just crying and clapping was great. And that was something that I would definitely carry with me for the rest of my life. You kind of dominated pretty much <laughs> every team you played, did you not? <laughs> yeah, we had a pretty good team. <laughs> um, since then, how often do you play with the national team? So usually away from the pandemic, um, we meet up about once or twice a month um, at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. Um, during about the months from January to May, we meet up domestically and have about three to four day training camps. Um, so we're on court about nine, nine, 10 hours a day with weightlifting and training and all that kind of stuff. And then during the summer months, we do more international trips before the big competition. So like this year, we were scheduled to go back to Germany and Netherlands um, for a few weeks before we were to head to Tokyo. What are you doing now uh, that we have all these shelter-in-place orders to stay in shape and keep your shot? And, uh, you know, I, I understand that, that everything's on hold, but I imagine you're not just just letting everything uh, go to hell. <laughs> oh, no. No, so actually, I live, being in Fort Worth, I'm in Tarrant County, and so actually Tarrant County removed all basketball rims and volleyball nets from all the recreational parks. So, and I don't have a goal here, so I have not shot a basketball in I don't know how many weeks. Um, but I do kind of made my own little home gym. We built up a kind of homemade squat rack or the power rack and so I ordered some equipment um, that took about a month to get here but it's building and so a lot of home workouts every morning. I, I know you're a you're a personal trainer and I imagine you know they're just there's so few opportunities given to people who are disabled to to talk and elevate their voice and share their lives and I imagine somebody listening might think, how could somebody in a wheelchair be a trainer? Talk through, mm -hmm. when you talk through that, like that, 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 this idea that just because you're in a wheelchair, you can't do something that an, an able-bodied person might be able to do. You, you might not be able to teach somebody who's able-bodied mm -hmm. how, how to build their body. Yeah, for sure. So actually over the past year, um, I've been working a lot on my leg strength and trying to walk as much as I can still walk as much as I can. Um, and so I'm able to walk a decent amount. I wear an ankle brace that attaches with cables, like a BOA system, kind of like these on snow boots. And it attaches to some hooks on my shoe. So it keeps my foot elevated so I can walk. So um, I'm not fully in a wheelchair. I can walk a good amount. Um, I just have legs as, or toothpicks as legs right now, <laughs> super skinny. Um, and so I have actually, I've changed my diet, some of my lifestyle habits, like I'm fully plant-based now, which is super hard at first about two years ago. Um, and so 
yeah, I, I mean, I have background with obviously people with disabilities. And I know even some people with disabilities look for a personal trainer, but are afraid that the personal trainer has no background or no interest in learning um, how to provide service for someone with a disability. Because um, there's obviously a lot to kind of count in on that. Um, but that does come as a disadvantage. And I think it all, I think it all it comes, all it comes down to is kind of see what Jim would take that as an opportunity or as, or as a disadvantage when it comes to sales and marketing, that type of thing. So I hope we're going to find out here soon what some Jim's think once this pandemic um, starts to end and Jim starts to open up a little bit. But so we'll see. Yeah, it is amazing that so much of being a personal trainer is marketing. I mean, when I when I go to the gym, that's that's really what the, the, the trainers are trying mm-hmm. to do. They are they are trying desperately to market themselves. And some some backward idea that uh, a, a woman in a wheelchair uh, or a, a, a woman who maybe can't run doesn't 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 know how to train you to build your body. I say all the time, Tiger Woods is a better golfer than his coach. Just because mm-hmm. someone can't, can't uh, maybe run or, or lift what you can lift, that doesn't mean they can't help you get there. Mm-hmm. And so I think some places will be like, oh, Team USA Paralympian, I think that's great. That would be great for sales and marketing. Or so they could come out and say, oh, no, you walk like a zombie apocalypse is about to strike. We're, we can't do that. It's going to make us look bad. So I don't. I personally don't know anybody else who is a Paralympian or in depth sports and does personal training. So um, I guess I'll find out how all this goes. You let us know where you end up, and and <laughs> we no. I'm serious. We, we will absolutely uh, get the word out that that, that would be that, awesome. <laughs> uh, absolutely, no, uh, we would love to do that. I always end the interview with the same two questions, but we talked before, and I know that one of the questions uh, you're not going to have a very good answer for, so we're going to skip the question about the Lord of the Rings. I am sorry. I am so lame. Oh, no, no. Listen, the the name of the podcast is Five Rings to Rule Them All, and it's taken from a line in the Lord of the Rings. So about, about a quarter of the people I interview don't know what I'm talking about. And, and the other 75% do, so you're fine. You're in good company, <laughs> trust me. But I imagine there is a Paralympian or Olympian who has inspired you over the years. Uh, who, who is someone who comes to mind? Um, there's not one specific person, but the U.S. women's soccer team, hands down. They, I think they are a huge driving factor in not just women's sports, but athletes that are LGBTQ. And I think they've done an amazing job representing our country and standing up for what they believe in. And, and I really hope that they're able to um, go through this appeal with the court and finally get equal pay and what they deserve. It's interesting that I think this is episode 25 of my podcast and that the two names that have come up the most multiple times are Michael Phelps, of course, and the U.S. women's national team. And it is. It really is incredible how they have captured the imagination of of so many people and been able to inspire so many people. Oh, so many! And I mean, Megan Rapinoe, Ali Krieger, Nashon Harris, or just the few, and Alex Morgan. I think just all of them are charismatic in the way that they represent themselves and their families and the country. 
and I think it shows. And uh, I I just think they're awesome. <laughs> yeah, the three women that you mentioned are all LGBTQ, and and I'm mm-hmm. curious what for you. Um, I guess that wasn't the last question because now I have another. <laughs> You're beating <laughs> me down another question. Um, what does it mean to you to be LGBTQ and uh, representing the United States? What does it mean to you to represent the community as well? Um, I think one thing that we all strive for is just to be treated equal, not anything special, not anything more, not anything less, and just be normal. I guess well, it's kind of a vague term. Um, but just that LGBTQ athletes are just athletes and being gay is just one small part of who we are and our lives. But being gay does not dictate what we perform on the, on the competition floor at all and how we train. Um, but it is nice to see people or athletes out there and be outspoken that are LGBTQ and are able to go off and do these big, great, successful things and have such an impact on the world, not just themselves, but on a global stage. I think that is something to take away. Um, but yeah, I've, I am totally honored and this has been a great journey so far. Well, I appreciate you being visible and being willing to talk about these issues and helping open people's eyes and, and representing our country and bringing home a gold. So thank you. <laughs> And, Thank and, you. And and please, uh, when you do a, a land at a gym or, or a training facility, let me know so that we can support you. I will. That'd be awesome. Thank you so much. You can follow Abby Duncan on Instagram at adunk23 and on Twitter at aduncan23. That's A-D-U-N-K-I-N 23. And I hope you'll spend some time, you know, checking out the sport of wheelchair basketball and other adaptive sports. There are some really interesting sports um, and, out there. Uh, s- many of them are adapted from mainstream sports and other ones like goalball are just totally different and new and, and, and super interesting to watch. Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm surprised some of these aren't have not found their way onto somewhere on the ESPN or Fox Sports networks because they are they are really cool to watch. Anyhow, thank you for listening. I, I hope you're having a great week, and I hope you'll come back next week when I'll be talking to, I believe, another Olympian. <laughs> but uh, oftentimes, uh, week to week, I'm not sure who the next one is going to be, but I'm I I have my eyes on a few Olympians, so. I think that's who we'll be talking to next week. But anyhow, thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you then.